I'm the guy who's famous for biting off more than I can chew in the time given to me, so I'm going to get us started only about a minute late, if even that. And Thanks for being here. It's a delight. I've been uh, at the church and the campus a couple of times in my ministry life. My uh, Most of my ministry life was spent at a college in Iowa, Faith Baptist Bible College and Theological Seminary. And as a part of that ministry, we had... Uh, conferences in the summertime with faculty from different institutions, and it kind of rotates around to those different institutions, and uh, Detroit hosted that a couple of times in my years and enjoyed the time being here, and uh, uh, the school I used to teach at full-time, I teach adjunct a little for the seminary now, uh, they had the conference this summer, and there were some of the guys from Detroit that came down for that, so it's good to, it's good to be here, and it's good to have all of you uh, take the risk of coming to this workshop. Thank you for taking the risk. We're going to pray together, and then we'll, uh, we'll forge ahead, okay? Father, we love you, and we are thankful for your faithfulness, your goodness, your holiness. We're thankful for your grace and your mercy, and we pray that you would help us uh, as we walk with you in the energy of your spirit in a fellowship of believers, that you would help us to grow and grow to be more uh, accurate reflectors of your glory to the people we minister to. And we pray that as we work together in this hour to talk about these important topics, that you would uh, help us to be provoked in our thinking uh, in ways that would uh, strengthen our ability um, uh, in our own walks with you, and then certainly strengthen our usefulness uh, in your service as well. Thank you. In your son's name, amen. Okay, so let me lay out some expectations uh, and some goals for what we're going to try to accomplish, and then we'll move along in that direction. Uh, so I do hope to answer some questions along the way that you have. I can promise you that, and I do hope to maybe raise and answer some questions you haven't thought about, but I also promise you that I'm going to raise some questions you haven't thought about and leave unanswered them, as well as some questions you have and leave those unanswered, because that's just the nature of a workshop on such a complex topic. Uh, and then... Uh, in a workshop context, uh, I'm going to make some assumptions of uh, biblical knowledge, of developing theological knowledge on the topic. So this isn't going to be a uh, theology of guilt and shame or forgiveness, nor are we going to do exegesis of a passage, which is really disappointing to me, and I hope not overly disappointing to you. Uh, but the purpose that I've got with what we're going to accomplish is really to help us to think more precisely about the categories of guilt and shame, uh, the categories of fallenness, the categories of finiteness. In one sense, I should uh, tip my hat in the direction of the morning speaker because he provided a wonderful foundation for what we're going to talk about uh, in our time together and really just seek to uh, to bring some precision to how we think about these matters, bring some precision to how we talk about these matters, uh, because uh, the scripture talks about them precisely. And when we talk about it precisely, we give real hope. You know, the, 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 
the, you know, one of the linchpins of uh, the evil that comes out of me does just that. It comes out of me. It comes out of my heart. Uh, one of the joys of that is that's hopeful uh, because that, that if I rightly locate the source of the problem, then I've got hope to do something about it. And that's really key to what we're going to talk about in our, in our time together. Uh, so we're going to talk a little bit about the magnitude of the topic. We're going to talk a little bit about the complexities of people's lives. Consider, maybe correct, some key areas or some potential imprecisions in our thinking that in the, in the path that I've been on. Um, as a part of my teaching responsibility at faith, we also did had a counseling ministry through the, through the college and the seminary, and so I spent Thursday afternoons and evenings, Friday afternoons, and then sometimes a good fair part of Saturday morning, sometimes filling the afternoon, uh, working with pastors who would bring people from their churches and students and others. And so uh, just some things I've learned over the years on these topics to be more precise in that has been a help and a blessing to the people that God's brought across my life and then working that into our lives. So magnitude of the topic. I'm not so concerned about my representative examples as I am the second list. Uh, while you kind of digest that in your notes, and before I say a couple things about it, I do want to say uh, a couple things that we're not going to accomplish. So the complexities of some of those topics, we certainly aren't going to spend any time working on what does a case study look like uh, going through them. We're, our purpose is to not to talk, not talking about all of the legal matters and all of the things that can be involved in some of those complexities. We're really focusing in on, as is true in every one of those, helping people to have a precise, more precise understanding of guilt and shame, of their fallenness, of their finiteness, of the world in which they live, in a way that helps them sort out what they say to themselves. Uh, so that they have just better ways of uh, seeing, thinking, and can really lean their faith uh, on the truth of the Word of God. And so the second list I do want to like walk through. So the, these matters of guilt and shame really intersect with things done to you, things done by someone associated with you, someone with whom you share a relationship, things that you unwillingly observe, or sometimes you are forced to participate in. And so then it kind of shifts verbs here, things you did in the past, things you are doing now, and then the complexities added to because the stuff that happens to you, the stuff that you do, then you also evaluate. Uh, and other people also evaluate that. And so, you know, if you've walked your own path of life with a self-awareness and had stuff you've done and stuff that's happened to you and you've spent time in the trenches with people, uh, you realize what we're going to try to wade through in our now less than an hour uh, is a pretty complex topic. So, again, what I'm after is some, some uh, provoking, encouraging thought that will move us in the direction of some greater pre precision. So now... Understanding the complexities of people's lives. And this is not really a review of the message. It kind of takes it and expands it in a couple of ways. Uh, so another way of saying what we well heard in the last hour is sin happens in a context, but context never ultimately causes sin. Okay, So sin, fallenness, and our expressions of fallenness happens 
in the context of our human limitations, and it happens in the context of a sinful world. It also happens in a context where God's grace and mercy is available. And most of the time, there is a context in which uh, that sin is provoked, and certainly a context where that's when our sin expresses itself, and the context is significant, uh, but the context is never determinative in its causalness. Uh, okay, and th- so that's one assertion. Second assertion, context can encourage us towards righteousness, hallelujah. Context can encourage us towards sinfulness. And we've all had those experiences, and we've walked with people in the middle of those experiences. Context also can provoke or cause shame. Okay, so... so uh, you, the, the language of Scripture as it relates to context and our guilt is always one of uh, we own our own guilt. You know, Psalm 51, for example, the passages that we, you have context of Scripture, people can put us to shame. Uh, okay, so context can provoke shame, context can also cause shame, uh, but it's always connected to the thoughts, the intents, the evaluations of our heart. Feelings of shame can easily be interpreted as culpability. Feelings of shame can be interpreted as being guilty. Okay? Uh, So feelings of shame can easily be interpreted as guilty. Context is powerfully shaping. Okay? Uh, You know, the... The, uh, the way, if you have on a secular pair of glasses and you see that uh, angry people often grew up in angry homes, you make conclusions on your presuppositions that uh, there's something there of either, uh, either biological, hereditary, or something going on there of just the inescapable influence that goes on. Uh, we have another way of looking at powerful, sha- powerful shapingness. Uh, one of the ways I think about it is if you watched growing up a parent or even an older sibling use anger to get the desires of their heart, well, you're going to more likely use anger to get the desires of your own heart because it's something you've seen and observed and watched it can work. Uh, whereas you know, if you didn't grow up in that kind of a context, you don't have that sin on your list, that sinful anger on your list of potential choices uh, as much because you haven't experienced it, you haven't seen it. Uh, so context powerfully shapes people, but not determinatively. And of course, we have to think in terms of context and consider context in our stewardship responsibilities of loving others. If you have children, you've done that. You know, there, There's a difference between your child sinfully angry the day after plans didn't go the way you expected when you were out with company and you didn't get home till 1 o'clock in the morning. Hopefully not 1 o'clock. Let's say 11 o'clock. I would say 10 because I'm a little older now. But anyway, uh, and then your child having a good night's sleep. You know, you're, you're, you're taking into account the context, although you're not excusing the sinfulness. Okay? Now, next piece of the challenge is there is a lot of confusion about this. And the, conf- and the confusion is seen in how we use the language of guilt and how we use the language of shame. And I will admit to you, I'm a little hawkish on this, and so you might want to walk, you maybe will walk it back a couple of steps. I hope not, but, but that would be okay. You, 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 you do a little work on definitions, and you have definition of guilt, okay? Someone who has committed an offense 
but then you immediately have feelings of deserving blame for an imagined offense or feeling of deserving blame for offenses. Think, think of the lack of precision in how we use that word. And then you add to it the word guilt now is a verb. I have an English professor friend who hates nouns that were turned into verbs. Uh, but it's turned into a verb, so stop guilting me, right? And we just do not use language. I mean, we, we use it precisely to our context, but the precision has melted down in this arena, guilt and shame, okay? Now, the, the, the challenge of the word shame is outside of the professional realm, the word shame doesn't show up in a lot of vernacular. doesn't show up in a lot of everyday conversation. You know, when's, when's the last time you heard someone say, I feel ashamed of that? Eh, not too long. Most of the time, what do they say? I feel guilty. Okay, and, and I'll just give you a, a practical observation on my part. It, it, is, it is like one small step, like maybe that big, to move in your own heart's deliberations from feeling guilty to concluding you are guilty. Whereas it's a little bigger step to be talking to yourself about feeling ashamed and feeling shamed and then stepping across the line to saying, I am guilty. And I I have found with working with people who have been horrifically victimized by other people, helping them to remove the language of feeling guilty from their talk and from their, especially their talk from themselves, gives them a way of slowing down their thinking to sort out what am I culpable for, what am I not culpable for, and I feel shame, if it's working the way it should, I feel shame when I am guilty, but I also feel shame when I'm around people that are guilty, and stuff happens to me that is just horrible stuff that happens to me. Okay, so, confusion of the language. Guilt objective. Okay, so now we're going to just kind of do with, without defending it. I'm going to make some statements about what I think is significant from Scripture, and we'll give you some passages to kind of anchor that in. Guilt's objective. That means it's something that's true whether, uh, excuse me, let me try that again. Something that's true whether we realize it or not. Okay, the emphasis is on God's evaluation of my relationship to Him and others. I'm guilty, I'm innocent, I'm pardoned, that type of language. Shame is subjective, okay? It's always, it is always based on our evaluation, or it can be based on other people's evaluation, okay? Uh, and you've got a whole list of things there, okay? I'm being shamed in some of the language of Scripture. Are you, you know, I'm being put to shame. I'm honored. I'm accepted. I'm rejected. I feel ashamed. I feel honored. I feel accepted. I feel rejected. So it both relates to ways others treat us, and ways we evaluate self, okay? So the actual how have people treated us, you can, you can do things to shame another person. You can. Uh, and some people are more impacted by that than others. Uh, so what happens to us and how we evaluate what happens to us. And I've given you some examples. So there's selected scripture passages. You can just kind of catch these now. Guilt, Psalm 5, bear their guilt. They've rebelled against you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness. Pardon my guilt. Blot out my transgressions. And then some examples on the topic of shame. You have in the fall, guilt and its accompanying shame. You know, it, it, it's, 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 we ought to actually be thankful 
that when we sin, we feel ashamed. We ought to. Thank the Lord for that. The Spirit of God, our conscience, working the way it's supposed to work. Uh, and uh, then you have more of the shame brought on me. So let me not be put to shame. Don't let my enemies exalt over me. Let them be ashamed. And then uh, the proverb, a father, person who does violence to father, chases his mother, brings shame, reproach. Pay, pay attention to people in situations where they are around others, related to others, uh, who are sinning when they sin. I'm going I'm to shorten this, but I think I can make the point. I was late night in an airport, uh, and it was chaos because there was weather and there was crew problems and all this, and there were a lot of flights that were delayed, and it was crowded, and there was a guy who went ballistically angry. I, I watched, I watched the, the, uh, de- the desk attendant hit the little button. Uh, and by the time security came, this little crowded end of the uh, end of the uh, the word left me into the corridor. I know that's not the airport or terminal. Thank you. The end of the terminal. All of us were left this like. 20, 30-foot bubble around these people, and the people who couldn't get the farthest away had turned their back to it. Why? Because it's just shameful to watch people act like that. Well, pay attention to that, and then listen for that, look for that, uh, and the people we minister to who have been sinned against in those ways, or in bigger ways even. A couple other examples here. Okay? Now... We'll come up for air after we do this but, and walk back to it, but let me make some statements. I can be guilty and feel shame. Hallelujah. I can be guilty and not feel shame. That ought to be scary. Um, a lot of the DSM personality disorders, and personality disorder is kind of like the death sentence uh, diagnosis. Uh, I can be shamed and not be guilty. Okay. I can feel shame and not be guilty. So I already think about the complexities of listening to someone who been sinned against, has their own sin, and it all just sort of melts together in their life. Okay, I can be shamed and feel shame and then interpret those feelings as being guilty when I'm not guilty. Okay, I can be shamed and feel shame and then interpret those feelings as being guilty when I'm not. And if you've, if you've ever walked the path with anybody who was, was in a sustained relationship where they were horrifically, repeatedly sinned against, uh, that's, that's a big piece of that puzzle often. I feel shame of what happened to me. I interpret those feelings as being guilty. I can feel shame and interpret those feelings as being guilty of one sin when in reality I feel shame because I'm guilty of an entirely different sin. Okay. Now, one illustration of this, and I, I want to be cautious because this is an illustration. It's not the template for everybody. Okay. So I can feel shame, interpret those feelings as being guilty of one sin when I feel shame because I'm guilty of another sin. Some people have <clears throat> sin of the past that there is just a host of things looking back on it. Regret, consequences of what's taking place in their life all of those things, and they find it very, very challenging to trust God with the promises of his word about their past, confessed, turned from, repented of sin. 
And some of those people can fall into, walk into, serially confessing that sin over and over and over again. And so they feel shame over their past sin, and they interpret that shame as still being guilty, and they really are focused on ridding themselves of the regret. Uh, they, they probably wouldn't say it this way. You would help them to see it, ridding themselves of the regret, ridding themselves of the feelings of the weight of it. Maybe, maybe there can be some penance paying in it, and if I, you know, if I do this enough, then I'll re- get the consequences lightened a little bit. But in actually doing that, okay, now you don't throw bricks at me, but you can, you can challenge me, push back against me on this. Serially confessing sin to God in the place of trusting God with forgiveness. What would you call that? You know, let me call that sin. It's unbelief. Yeah. You know, let me call that sin. You know, it, it, you know so it's, it's another example of don't just tell people to read their Bible and pray. Because what they read is significant. You know, and how they pray, what they pray is significant. Yes, sir. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and until you know the person, until you know the person, you don't know exactly what's going on there. So maybe they don't know. You know maybe they've never sat down and had somebody walk them through, uh, because God is faithful and just, this is what happens. And they've not really understood that. Maybe, and they understand that, and boy, you just watch the, the light of belief come on, and, and you're like, oh, that's when you go home, and you're like, oh, yes. Uh, and then uh, maybe they know, but they're just, they're, they're just not trusting it. They're just not trusting it. And um, so that's one example. It's not the whole example. It's not everything that there is to say about that, but it's just one example of that. Um, okay, now. Yes? I hate to interrupt you. No, you're okay. But when you get a person in that situation and they're stuck, yeah. you can tell them that God forgives, you can yep. show them in Scripture, they say they believe it, but they can't apply it. Yes. Do you keep going on and try to go to the next and stay there and park, park there until they can come and grasp? Yeah, it's so a good question. Yeah, that, that person, you're exactly right. So I tend to be the guy who wants to take the real-time experiences of the week and talk about them as my starting point and say, let's talk about this. If they're, all, if they're parked there, it'll come up. It'll come up in questions. It'll come up in caring for people. And I, yeah, yeah, and, I, and I'm, I'm, not the, I'm not the standard bearer for how this is done, okay? Uh, but my normal mode of operation in that is let's, Let's go to the text again and talk about it. Let's now then go to another text. Let's go to some examples. I mean, I, w- I want people in that place to really see the character of their God rightly applied across a whole host of Scripture. I'm the guy who usually anchors it in one text, paragraph, chapter, book maybe, uh, and then goes out from that and comes back to that. Uh, but that's what I want to do, and and um, uh, then then the homework looks like. I mean, <laughs> yeah, cover up the recording. Uh, if somebody just listens to this part of it, they're going to go, "Who did this place invite?" Um, uh, some, I mean, in some of those cases, my homework has been: don't read those passages of scripture, 
And no matter how much you want to pray that prayer, what's it sound like? Now it sounds like, Father, help me to trust in your forgiveness and forgive me for not trusting your forgiveness rather than forgive me for, you know, 15 years ago that they clearly have moved away from. Yes, sir. So one way of framing that is kind of helping someone move from assent of what God has done to them, like just mental assent yep. of the facts to yep. Trust. Yeah, I got, I've got to lean. I've got to lean my faith on that. And when I lean my faith on that, that doesn't mean boom. I'm all of a sudden going to change, but it does mean I'm going to slow down. And I, you know, I, I mean, I consider it a good step of success when somebody who's like that uh, started praying that way and shifted gears. <laughs> you know, hallelujah. I mean, someday I'm hoping they're not praying, not shifting the gears, but but that's kind of the way change works. Good. That is really good. Don't apologize at all. Uh, okay, so now the standard for measuring guilt and shame, you know it. I mean, it's objectively the Word of God, okay? The Word of God properly interpreted. If I don't let the Word of God properly interpreted be the standard by which I measure guilt, then what becomes the standard, okay? God's Word wrongly interpreted. Our family of origin and how they sorted out what you, you know, what, what you were, with they, you know, every, every, Every person has their own code, you know, and every family has its own code uh, of ethic, so to speak, or culture, or a blend of those. I'm adding this. I'm not developing, and I'm sorry for that, but I just want to plant this thought. When someone doesn't adopt God's standard, even if they just don't know it, okay, if they couldn't because they don't know it, when someone doesn't adopt God's standard, it's not a vacuum in which they choose what standard they're going to grab a hold of. They choose the standard based on what they think, and, and they, they don't put it together this way, but it's just the way the human heart works. They choose the standard based on what they think will deliver to them the things that they desire most. Uh, so you know, if, they, if a person who chooses their family of origin standard, they may have some under, may have understanding of this over something in their culture, for example. They do that because there is some panoply constellation of desires uh, that they think will be delivered to them. And again, you, you know this. That's not the language they have for it. That's the joy of what we do. Uh, we give people biblical glasses, ways of seeing things that give them hope and give them light and really help them on the path of trusting the Lord. Now, next challenge, and I promise, this is, even this is not in your handout, I promise it will connect, even though you're going right now, what has this guy done? So here's the question. Are you sanctified? Are you holy? Now, what are you saying to yourself right now? Yeah, well, I'm asking for you, okay? So you yourself. Are you, yeah, for you. So if, if I looked at you, we were just standing in the hallway, which would be really awkward and strange, and I looked at you and said, are you, are you sanctified? Are you holy? How would you answer that question? Right? That's how you'd answer the question, right? It depends. Well, are you talking about positionally? Absolutely. Hallelujah. I'm clothed in the righteousness of God in Christ. If you're talking about yesterday, well, <laughs> my plane was late yesterday. Anyway, and I, I think I was okay. I, I mean, I wrestle in heart. I don't think I sinned against anybody in that context, but I'm not the final judge. Uh, and then permanent complete, right? Okay, so now, again, hold off stone throwing till we walk down the path a little further. 
must I forgive? It depends. Okay? Now, how do you, you know, how do you know in the Word of God whether it's talking about um, positional sanctification, progressive sanctification, or we'll just keep the alliteration, permanent sanctification. There's not a different word. You can't look it up in the Greek and say, oh, hey, there it is. How do you know? Context, right? Okay. So how do you, so one of the things that's really essential is when the Bible talks about forgiveness, we've got to pay attention to the con- context. Okay. And, and, um, I'm going to commend a resource to you by Robert Jones entitled Pursuing Peace. Uh, Pursuing Peace. Uh, and he has a, a, a good distinguishing chart that he develops in the book. Uh, okay, so there is a forgiveness that is at the level of my heart. A forgiveness that is a forgiveness of attitude. And that is a focus between me and my walk with the Lord. You can maybe long for a little more precision on what releasing bitterness from my heart looks like, but no book can do everything it wants to, you know, it needs to accomplish. So it's not a criticism; it's just a limitation of purpose, and that's unconditional. I, I you know, you, you think Ephesians four thirty two: keep on becoming kind, compassionate, tender hearted, forgiving. Uh, so there, these are attitudes that we, we keep on becoming, keep on growing in. And I really appreciate his construct of commitments, okay? God's the judge, not me. Romans 12, right? Romans 12, not Romans 13. Yeah, Romans 12. Sorry, I said it and I thought, oh, no. Uh, I'll meddle for a second here, two seconds. Um, you think of all the, the commands of Romans 12, you know, if your enemy hungers, feed him, don't be overcome with evil, overcome evil with good. What part of the character of God is obedience to those anchored in? What's, it, what's the text say about God that we often skip over? You're proving my point. What's it say? Vengeance is mine. I will repeat, yep, give place to wrath. You know, it, what, what, how, how can you do anything or have any thought of any kind of desire for good in someone who's horrifically wronged you? God makes promises and he keeps promises, and I can trust him with those promises, and I don't have to be the one to take his role. And there's some real confidence in that. And so I, I, I entrust them to God. I empty my heart of bitterness. I'm ready to grant a, he calls it level two, a transacted forgiveness, a relational forgiveness. And then relational, transactional forgiveness, me and the person I have offended or me and the person who has sinned against me. And that only can happen if there is repentance, right? You can, and there's a lot of people who really sink into quicksand on this one. You know, my dad, my uncle, my husband, my, you know, who, uh, there, there cannot be a relational restoration without an ownership of sin. There just can't be. Uh, and helping people to sort, it, it, they, they tend to, people who, especially people with a sensitive conscience before the Lord, who are in those types of challenges and relationships, when they read texts on forgiveness, they don't have the fullness of forgiveness. They think here, and then they're like, what's wrong with me because we still 
I mean, every time I'm around her, she argues with me. Every time I'm around him, he this. And I don't even want to be around them. And it just, I mean, you, you hear that, there's a whole lot of stuff to pack and unpack and repack and all of that. And having this way of seeing things, okay, there is, there is a, an attitude of forgiveness that is, is hard, exceedingly hard, to cultivate in our lives and a relational forgiveness that takes place. Really important to help people think that through, think about that, okay? And that some of this is kind of biblical counseling 101, but I want to add a couple things to it. So what happens when God forgives us? He makes a promise to us. His, his, um, the, I, your sins and your iniquities I will remember no more is not a suspension of his omniscience, okay? And you know that. Uh, he promises he will not remember our sins against us anymore. And, and one of the things that people who struggle with that forgiving and forgetting, uh, my go-to on that is, uh, so did God forgive David for his sin with Bathsheba and his sin against Uriah? Absolutely. Will we ever forget that? Nope. And, and ponder this one for just a second or two. When you meet Rahab, and I'm making an assumption there, when you meet Rahab in eternity... Will the exchange be, oh, you're Rahab the... I mean, that's the only way we know her, right? If you're going to identify Rahab, it has to have the tagline. And at some level, as I ponder that, this is just Jeff's imagination, so that gets you in trouble. But if that's still the tagline, won't that just magnify the glory of God? You know, and, and where does shame fit into that? I mean, no shame in that context. So it's negatively, it's a promise not to bring the matter up to self, to others, to the person sinned against. Don't miss the last part with the purpose to punish. This is not once forgiveness is done, you shut your mouth. You know, there, there's a lot of, kind of patterns of sin need to be talked about to have insight, to rebuild trust. Uh, but uh, it's not a purpose to punish. And at the end of the day, what makes this so challenging is you can speak and I know that you'll pick different words from the thesaurus and your tone will have a difference to it. But you can speak words about past sin that are exactly the same words from a heart trying to help and from a heart trying to punish. It's why this gets so challenging in counseling. It also gets challenging in your own heart. You know, Do you only speak the tough words when you're fed up with the person? Yee. Right? I can look in the mirror on that one. You know, when, when do you finally decide they need to come to Jesus moment? You know, I think they've wasted enough of my time now. Yeah, no, no, no. You don't pick words based on what you want. You don't pick words based on what they want. You pick words based on what God wants. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then positively, from a foundation of trust in the Lord, we don't count the person as our enemy. We rather begin to extend trust. And I will. And again, there's different authors that that talk about this in different ways, and of course I think my way is better, okay? Uh, but I'm not, I'm not saying if they talk about it differently, they're wrong. But I, I think forgiveness is event-driven, so to speak. I mean, attitudinal forgiveness is a, a, a constant attitude of heart. But forgiveness transacted is event-driven. It may be multiple events, as there's multiple insight that goes on. The rebuilding of trust is a process, and there's a difference between the two. 
You know, just because you forgive or just because someone extends you forgiveness does not mean you're trustworthy and does not mean you extend full trust to someone. And just helping people to sort that out. I mean, I, when you see this happen in people's lives, it builds your faith. You know, when you, when you bring the clarity of the Word of God to someone and they're like, well, if that's what forgiveness is, I can do that. I can do that. Because they've added on to, you know, I've got to make sure he's never going to do it again. or I've got to have, And you just bring the clarity of Scripture, and it's just one step at a time. They walk in the light. Um, okay? So, how do we minister the clarity of the Scripture's teaching? Key question. Key que- and I would say this is, this is like key biblical counseling question. What does it look like for this person in this context to walk with faith in God and to express that faith in loving obedience. That, that's like the question that I'm always asking myself when I'm talking to somebody. What, what, what is it look like for this person in this context to walk with faith in God and to express that faith in a loving obedience? And, you know, purpose of biblical counseling, give people every opportunity to come to faith in Christ, to keep walking with faith in Christ. I appreciated your, your uh, saying that... Uh, uh, some some counseling is not about people and their sin or and sinning, so it's to come to faith in Christ, to keep walking with faith in Christ, or return to that walk of faith, and just holding those kind of basic goals in front of us keeps us in the right task and brings us context brings and, and brings context in. So, don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. Okay, what we're walking, we're loving a person, walking with them on a path of change, learning about their context, so we're speaking into, not above or under, under or beside. And fundamentally, don't, and I'll say it another way and then maybe you'll buy it, but fundamentally, we are not problem solvers, we're people lovers. Now, if people don't find solutions on the path, then, okay, that's ugly too. By the way, some of our problems don't have solutions till we're with him, Right? You know, so so we we think of our you know if you slow down, especially when a you know when a person when a person finally decides to get open about this morass of stuff that's gone on in their life, no matter how hard they work to be organized, it just and there is an experience they have in just finally doing that if you if you treat them with any care where they start to feel lighter. What happens to you when that happens? You start to feel heavier. That's a good thing, because then you're bearing one another's burdens and fulfilling the law of Christ. But it doesn't feel like a good thing when it's happening to you, because now you're feeling the weight of it as their weight is rising or is lifting. And our temptation is, okay, start thinking problem-solution, problem-solution, problem-solution. When we really ought to be thinking, what more do I need to know? How do I listen to this person? How do I love this person? How do I and care for this person? And that doesn't mean you don't have solutions or, or things there. But, but if you just think problem-solution, you'll fail to know the person in their life's context and really be able to minister the word rather than dispensing the word, if that makes sense. Big, my biggest rookie mistake in early counseling, and I still... I'm a rookie at times on this, is trying to do too much too quick and not slowing down. And not, I, I try to remember the book, I can't now. I was really helped by a challenge to say, don't be thinking, what am I going to say next? What do, I need, what do we need to do here? But be thinking, what more do I need to know here? 
and and just that it really helps me, especially first times getting to know a person. I don't. I I try to really resist. What am I going to say? Where am I going to go in scripture? You do that. I mean, you just do that. And I really work hard to say, what more do I need to know? How do I? What more do I need to ask here? How? What more do I need to do to demonstrate a care and grow in a care for the person? Okay. Now, how do we do this? And I'm just offering you some launch points. So if, 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 you're, if you're a person who's here and going, whoa, wow, I'm, I'm just, uh, turn the fire hydrant off. Just, just spend some time in the Word, reading and thinking about what you see in front of you on these themes of guilt and shame, because it's all over the place. Okay? So, you know, just spend time in the Word thinking about it. Give yourself some, some additional study on the topics. I've got one article suggestion here that I want to highlight. There's an article by Ed Welch in the Journal of Biblical Counseling called Exalting Pain, Ignoring Pain, What Do We Do with Suffering? It's a good, it's a good article. Don't let his stereotype hyperbole at the beginning of the article put you off so you don't read it to the end. Because he does, he, he like divides people into sin counselors and pain counselors, and he sort of narrowly stereotypes. And your first read, you're like, you want to start arguing with him about it, which probably means he's on to something. But, uh, but you want to start arguing with it. But it's a helpful article. Then, you, use precise biblical terms when you think about these things and when you speak about these things. Think in categories of fallenness and finiteness. Never say, I'm only human when it's sin. Right? Because sin is not really a part of our humanity, as it were. Right? Right. Yeah, and it's just not precise either. And at the end of lack of precision is hopelessness. You know, when, when, I, when, I say, when I say I'm only human, then I'm not going to really engage in understanding things well, and I'm never going to be able to respond in faith. Uh, think in categories of guilt and shame, okay? And use that language with people. I have, uh, my wife and I have a young lady we've ministered to over a number of years uh, who uh, just, and I don't, I don't turn this into an argument or anything, I just start using the words. You know, she would constantly say about conversation about stuff in the past, I feel so guilty, I feel so guilty. And my questions were always something like, so when you feel ashamed, what do you say to yourself? And she was, she was a, a pretty sharp young lady, and she long about the fourth or fifth time. I said, so why are you saying it that way? And then we could have a conversation about it. And it's sort of become code words between her and my wife, her and me. Uh, if we, you know, if, if the, you know, the, you're in a setting where you can't really talk in much more detail, and you say, "How are you doing?" which is normally just a polite greeting, and you know, if it, if there's no people around of any consequence, she can lean forward and say, "I'm feeling guilty today," and that's code word for "I'm kind of struggling today," because otherwise, she, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't say, "I'm feeling guilty." Uh, so, think in those categories. When you sin, call it sin. It is not a mess up. It is not a mistake. It is not the, the mess up and mistakes fit in our finiteness. You know, I, I, I measure twice and cut once and I still <laughs> have had to go to Menards. <laughs> and, and, you know, sometimes it gets, sometimes it gets a little sticky to sort all that out because if I measure twice and cut once and between the measuring and the cutting, I was impatient with my son who was helping me. Mm, okay. So there's, 
you know, we're not, we don't get, you know, we don't live in the cat, you know, we don't live in the boxes. We live whole person. Uh, but it still helps you to sort it out, you know. Um, then be self-aware. When you sin and are sinned against, when you're sinned against, think about your experience and your response. Pay attention to yourself. You know, don't assume everybody's going to respond just like you, but we are human beings and are, are built a certain way. And then when you're witness sin or when you're, with some, you're associated with someone who sins publicly, think about it. And then it helps you ask good questions to learn from other people what their experiences are. And there'll be shared commonalities, maybe differences of intensity or things like that. But just start paying attention to these things. Then uh, people wisdom. Uh, so yeah, you have to know the word well, and you have to know the people you serve well on the basis of the word of God, and you bring those two together. So you just never miss an opportunity to listen. You never miss an opportunity to ask a question. You never miss an opportunity to sort out the things you're hearing in a biblical, biblical paradigm. If you've not read Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands by Paul Tripp, like, sorry for this, but... But uh, find something to sell and buy it, uh, and then and then do something to offload your schedule to start reading it. It's well worth. I mean, you want to agree with everything, and, and, and so. But but the the categories are helpful, and then just have your have your heart turned on in scripture, and just think how rich and precise the Bible is in these, and then just live it out in your own life. Oh, uh, a, a backtrack to. Uh, your question about the person who gets stuck in that. Um, so, our words counsel people, and how we live around people counsels people. There's somebody, they didn't challenge me just this way, but somebody challenged me in a certain way a bunch of years back about being a reflection of the glory of God to the people I counseled. And that turned into a little additional kind of thought process, preparation process in my counseling for some of the people that I counsel. I purposely think, okay, what are the, the moral communicable attributes of God that I most need to be careful to reflect to them? And sometimes I've got the list. You know, I, I, they really need to see in me the mercy of God. Or they need to see in me God's justice. Or they, you know, and so there was one uh, young lady that I was helping with that, and she, was just, she always, I mean, she sunk into quicksand over her head multiple times a day on that. And there was a whole context behind that and then just all the desires of her heart that were going on in that. And there was one time I was talking to her and I'm like, there are these pieces of the puzzle are not fitting together, which either means I'm not asking the right questions or somebody's holding out here. Uh, and so I just said that. I said, I just, something doesn't feel like it's fitting today. I mean, we'd been t- you know, working together for quite a while. Something doesn't feel like it's working today, fitting well together today. Am I, you know, is there something I should be asking you about that I'm not asking you about? Are you, and, and you know, I probably wouldn't say this to a person, person the first time, but we had a relationship there. Are you being honest with me? No, it's okay, it's okay. An hour after she left, I got an email from her saying, Dr. Newman, call me Jeff. Dr. Newman, I need to ask your forgiveness because when you asked me that, here's what I didn't tell you. And thank the Lord for his good providence because that, I was at my desk when I got the email and I didn't get interrupted and I could answer the email. And I got this most beautiful email back from her saying, you know, when I went to write that email, I was really looking forward to it because I was pretty sure I knew how you respond. 
My God's like that too, isn't he? Wow. And that ain't about Jeff, because on any given day, I could have looked at that and gone, really, why did you lie to me? And in that moment, thank the Lord. So that's just another, you know, you, if, if, you meet, if you meet anger with anger, if you meet, boy, it just it goes bad fast. And you, you've lived that, because I have too. Uh, so listen, ask thoughtful, sort. Okay, then we move on. Now, serve others with confidence. Confidence. Make much of the atoning work of Christ on the cross. Uh, there, there, I had a lady who came with a, another lady from her church. She was struggling with sin in her past. Cultivated relationship. So again, this wasn't like the first conversation. Cultivated relationship. And she just kept going back into that over and over again. Had shame and guilt confusing. There, the, the sin of her past also had a measure of coercion to it on the part of a husband. And so it was, it was, it was hard to sort it out and unpack it. Uh, but we did that carefully. And she still was just sinking down in the quicksand. And uh, she had talked to me about how the ways in which Christ's experience on the cross gripped, gripped her. And she had said, I can't imagine anybody standing in Christ's face on the cross or, and spitting in his face. And this is where you better not say anything like this when you've got any kind of hanger in your heart. Because I remember thinking, okay, Jeff, buckle your seat. I even told her, I said, I said, buckle your seatbelt because I'm going to say something a little hard right now. And then I want you to tell me, what I want you to do is after I say it, I want you to tell me the first thoughts you're thinking after I say it. And I said, you know, when you come back and you go back again and again and again, and we, we had talked a lot about the sufficiency of the cross. When you go back again and again and again to that, that anxious, um, anxious confession, seeking some kind of something, catharsis from it, it's really not any different than standing there and spitting in his face. Pretty harsh, pretty harsh. I never would have said that to a person the first time. Well, maybe, but not likely. It's what God used in her life. It, it, you know, the lady who was coming with her was angry with me. Oh, she was. I said, just uh, uh, my homework at the end of that was come back the next time. <laughs> don't, don't, don't not come back. Just think about it and come back one more time. Okay? So make much of Christ's experience of dying in our place. You know, he was sinned against in the process of paying for our sin. And think of the level of shame that involved. Right? Um, talk about that. And, and, and you go back over it again and again, and you're always looking for ways to, to just communicate it. Here, here's the way I say it. You're, you're looking for ways to demonstrate that it is what it is, fully and completely relevant to a person's life. You, you, don't, you don't work to make the Bible relevant, because it already is. You work to represent it as what it is, and to really help people to see that these things, th- this stuff is really relevant to everyday life, every moment of life, not just here, not just there, not just over there. Um, Pay attention to Christ's response to self-righteous victimizers and to lepers and other unclean individuals. And recognize that a lot of people in this category, when they read the word, think Christ responds to them like this. Right? So, so a lot of people who would fit the category of lepers, unclean, tax collectors, sinners, uh, and wouldn't fit the category of scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites 
when they read their Bible, what they see is Christ's response to scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, and they own that for themselves. And helping them to see the whole of the response and helping them to see, you know, how, where, this is where you have to learn the person, you know, learn their own heart. Okay, now where, where, where does their heart look like somebody's heart in scripture and how did God respond to that? How did Christ respond to that? Uh, biblical compassion, precision, make a bunch of eternity. And those of you in the room that are in your 50s, you'll get this one too. The older you get, the more you look forward to it. I mean, when I was in college and, and seminary, it was like, I always had that, could you wait until? Uh, and I'm still a young guy. I mean, I, I'm hoping I got a good 15, 20 years left in me of solid strength of ministry. Lord only knows. Uh, but uh, but um, the, the further you walk down the path of life, the more stuff goes off the list. And it's not just because it happens. It's because there's all kinds of other stuff that happens that you you know, every blessing and every every blessing has a burden to it, and every burden has a blessing to it. And God wisely, lovingly blends those together, personally tailored to help me to grow into the image of His Son. Hallelujah! Uh, and there's a day when all that's done, and I'm in His presence. And the person who the person who is dealing with the shame and regret and weight and consequences of their past sin, or the shame and consequences of somebody else's past sin against them. Uh, making much of eternity without minimizing the present and the suffering of the present is a big deal. Um, and if you struggle with that, welcome to the club. Uh, and go to Second Corinthians 4 and read it over and over again and talk more like Paul does. I mean, the, the language of that, you know, this, this light momentary affliction. So there's like no minimizing of suffering in that at all. You know, light as a feather, heavy so much that you can't take it. Ugh is but for a moment. In contrast, that's the key, in contrast to eternal weight of glory. And you, 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 you show the eternal weight of glory to people and uh, the shame, regret, consequences. They're just, they're just, and they're over, even though a night feels like an eternity.